0: Welcome to the webinar, A Guide to Integrating Emerging Therapies into Current Treatment Paradigms for hepatocellular Carcinoma. This program is provided by North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC, and is supported by an educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceutical Incorporated. I'm Ghassan Abu-Alfa, Medical Oncologist from Memorial Sloan Catering Cancer Center, and I'll be your presenter today. These are my disclosures. My goal in speaking to you today is to discuss emerging agents, including immune checkpoint inhibitor therapies that enhance survival for patients with HCC who have disease progression after Surafnib, evaluate the PK and PD profiles, efficacy, and adverse event data that are emerging regarding newer. TKIs and IO agents as monotherapy and/or in combination for management of HCC, and interpret recent results and ongoing clinical trials pertaining to therapeutic strategies designed to improve patients' outcome in HCC The agenda for today will uh, let me introduce TKIs, discuss them in details, followed by the checkpoint inhibitors or oncology We'll talk about chemotherapy, and we'll finish by discussing combination with local therapy. As far as the TKIs, as we all know, the story started with a short trial, a phase 3 randomized trial, that randomized patients with advanced HCC to a drug at that time was novel, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor called sorafenib versus placebo. Patients who had advanced HCC with appropriate performance status, Child's PUA's scoring were randomized to the sorafenib versus placebo, with the primary point being overall survival. As you can see here, the trial was positive, with a median survival of 10.7 months in favor of sorafenib versus 7.9 for the placebo, clinically and statistically significant. This led to the approval of sorafenib by the FDA, as well as other agencies worldwide, and became the standard care as of 2007. While it provided an important answer to what we were all aspiring for as a therapy, it also posed many questions, among which, who are the patients that will respond better to sorafenib? In this depiction from the study done by Dr. Anne Lee Chang, About sorafenib versus lenvatinib, which was an active study and reconfirmed sorafenib to be the standard of care. Nonetheless, we notice over here that a patient who receives sorafenib, if they were to have hepatitis C and are from East Asia, their mean survival can go all the way up to 18.3 months. And if it's patients from Asia with HBV, the mean survival will be about 7.9 months. Understandably, this does not mean that the drug course, work for everybody, but clearly, it appears to be the outcome might differ based on etiology and ethnicity. Ten years passed by without necessarily any positive trial, despite genuine and incredible efforts done by groups worldwide, until the advent of the resource trial, which was a randomized trial for a drug called rigorafenib versus placebo that was offered to patients who have advanced HCC that received prior sorafenib and progressed on the sorafenib. So they were literally able to tolerate the sorafenib, but they, they progressed on it radiologically, and they were offered as such the regorafenib versus placebo. The trial was positive, as you can see over here, with a median survival of 10.6 months for the rigorafnib versus 7.8 months for the placebo, again clinically and statistically significant. The two drugs, rigorafnib and sorafnib, are relatively close, but nonetheless they have certain differentiation. And interestingly enough, the uh, acquired resistance to sorafnib is driven by activation of IGF and FGF that might be important signals that the rigorafnib can attack. And if anything, this led to an understanding that the uh, rigorafnib uh, as a distant cousin of the uh, sorafenib can have different attributes that will be most importantly after the progression on sorafenib. Interestingly, in an unplanned study, uh, it was seen that patients who received regorafenib as part of the resource trial and prior sorafenib beforehand, the cumulative median survival for this population from the start of sorafenib till the progression on regorafenib was, and of course, until uh, death, it was 26 months. A pretty impressive number that we should definitely acknowledge. Afterwards, we heard at the ASCO uh, in 2017 about the advent of a novel drug called lymvatinib, another multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitor which already is approved for other uh, malignancies uh, with a high focus on FGF and in a rather impressive uh, design. Uh, the trial allowed patients, as a first line of therapy for advanced HCC, of course, with sharch uh, a to receive either lymphatinib versus sorafenib, with the primary point being overall survival, but in a very innovative approach for looking <clears throat> as non-inferiority. The reason of the non-inferiority was not an attempt uh, specifically by the uh, sponsor, but we understand that the agency uh, has supported that approach, considering that with the advent of the many therapies, it would be appropriate to look for non-inferiority at that time. With this said, the trial was positive. It shows here, as you can see, a median survival for the lenvatinib of 13.6 months, which is equivalent to the sorafinib 12.3 months, and there was no significant difference between between the two. Add to the uh, equivalent uh, median survival between limvatanib and surafinib, uh, it was clear that uh, limvatanib had certain advantages reported, including a doubling in the progression-free survival and also an impressive response rate by modified resist of close to 41 percent and also by resist 1.1 close to about 25 percent many of you may recall that at the time of the uh, advent of the sorafinib, there was a serious interest in regard to cMAT inhibition, uh, considering that uh, it attacks the hepatocyte growth factor, which of course the liver is uh, very abundant with. And as such, an effort was done with a multi kinase inhibitor with a cMAT activity uh, or inhibition called tivantinib. And as we can see here from a randomized phase 3 trial, in second line, tivantinib versus placebo, there was no difference, and if anything, so divantinib did not work. A very important note in regard to that study, that it was specific to patients with high CMAT because based on a phase two trial, it was noted that patients with a, a CMAT expression, which is more than 50%, three to four plus by immunostaining, did not fare well without therapy, 3.8 month median survival, whereas the CMAT low patients had nine month median survival. And as such, there was a uh, argument that the trial will be best fit for patients with poor outcome with the high CMAT and this whom it was offered to. Another drug at that time was evaluated, called cabozantinib, which, uh, as you can see here, was also studied in a phase 3 trial, uh, looking at cabozantinib versus placebo, uh, with the primary point being overall survival. Uh, this trial, whom I had the honor of uh, leading with a excellent uh, team of colleagues worldwide was actually uh, offered for all patients regardless of the CMAT expression. This was our argument that uh, we cannot really determine how much of a CMAT expression is needed. At the same time, we don't have a determination that the CMAT is the sole player for that drug because it's a multi kinase inhibitor. With this said, the trial was positive. It shows here a median survival for the cabozantinib of 10.2 months versus placebo eight months, which was clinically and statistically significant. While the drug is already approved for other indications, I would not be surprised that it will also be approved for the indication in second line in HCC. A new advent uh, that uh, was reported at uh, ASCO this year, ramisirumab another multi-TKI that was looked into uh, the HCC population originally but was negative. Uh, however, a notion that for patients with high alpha-fetoprotein, more 400 might, might fare better. Uh, as such, REACH2 was a clinical trial that looked at the remiserumab versus placebo in patients with advanced HCC who progressed on prior lines of therapy, but has an AFP level at baseline of more than 400. And as we can see over here, it was positive with median survival of 8.5 months for remiserumab versus 7.3 months for placebo. No doubt that this advent of uh, multiple tyrosine can inhibitor creates for us a rather complex picture. Uh, Here, as you can see, the big picture shows five agents with positive data, and uh, at least so far, two of them have been approved, being sorafenib and regorafenib. As you can see here, however, what to choose and how to choose will be very much dependent, could be on toxicity, but could be also based on biology. Talking about toxicity, uh, no doubt that sorafenib and regorafenib will probably share one of the common side effects, include, uh, which is hand-foot syndrome, which uh, no doubt uh, is uh, appropriately can be managed uh, by uh, preventive approaches, including uh, uh, some uh, emollient, emollient creams and, of course, uh, some repeated. Um, uh, evaluations and, of course, uh, dose reduction and interruption as deemed necessary. Uh, I would not necessarily say that this will be a uh, adverse event that will be limited the use of the drug, of course, except if it's not taken care of appropriately or, of course, in the uh, uh, uncommon uh, instances where it could be uh, rather uh, pretty advanced. Lenvatinib has the problem of the hypertension, which uh, definitely should be taken of, but uh, thankfully, this will be easily manageable anyway. And cabozantinib has a fatigue. And remissurumab is multi-TKI again with multiple side effects, yet we are waiting yet to see the details when they are reported. As far as activity, uh, no doubt the sorafinib, the hepatitis C story, which I mentioned, could be a favored approach, even though the drug can work for everybody. The Zirgorafinib prior to sorafinib is a requirement, and the limvatinib. Uh, no doubt, has multi approaches in regard to therapy, and I think the focus on the high response rate will be very valuable. The cabozantinib is still yet to be studied in details. Yet, uh, uh, no doubt that the uh, up to two lines prior therapy will be a valuable point, and of course, daratumumab with the high alpha protein story. It has been a fascinating uh, year uh, in 2017, and uh, if anything, not only that we had the advent of multiple TKIs, add to them uh, two that were reported in 2018, being cabosentamide and uh, uh, remiserumab uh, reported as positive and still awaiting approval, but also we have the advent of the checkpoint inhibitors, which are reported over here with the uh, phase 2 trial of NIVULUMAB that, at that time, was more concerned about the potential for the side effects from the nivolumab. And as you can see here, the early study looked into patients without viral hepatitis versus hepatitis C versus hepatitis B. But interestingly, with the advent of the study and the expansion to in the multiple cohorts, shows very clear from this swimmer plot that patients did respond regardless of the etiology. Actually, based on that data, which actually reported a response rate in the range of 16 to 20 percent, the FDA gave a uh, uh, conditional approval for nivolumab pending the advent of this phase 3 trial looking into nivolumab versus sorafenib, uh, which we are waiting for uh, to be reported. Checkpoint inhibitors were not only evaluated in the first-line setting, but also in the second-line. And similar to the uh, uh, nifolumab Phase 2 data, there has been data on pembrolizumab in Phase 2 that was reported already multiple times, but again, awaiting for the phase withdrawal that's looking into pembrolizumab versus placebo in the second-line setting. Not only that, but also another advent is the combination of anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1. As we can see over here, the uh, approach to use of an anti-CTLA-4 blockade uh, to attack at the lymph node level and then create a further environment for the anti-PD-1 at the tumor uh, level is uh, reported uh, elaborately in regard to the biology and has been uh, tested in a clinical trial among which a current uh, ongoing uh, phase trial looking into dervulimab as NTPD1 uh, and dervulimab plus tremolimumab as the NTPD1 plus anti 4 versus tremilumab. Actually this led to the advent of a uh, randomized phase trial that's already has launched called the Himalaya study uh, which include uh, four arms. Uh, one of them is Dervilumab, one of them is the combination of Dervilumab plus trimulumab, and the third is the same with the different uh, uh, dosage and uh, timing, and the last one will be sorafenib. Of course, we'll await for that data to be reported. With the advent of so many TKIs and so many checkpoint inhibitors, no doubt that one might wonder if there's any role per se for chemotherapy. And as we can see over here, the Folfox, Versus Doxorubicin data that was reported in GCO in 2013 by Dr. Shen and colleagues from China shows that there could be a potential benefit for the Fulfox per se, which of note is already approved by the Chinese FDA. The reason we got interested in this specific therapy is because we attempted to use ADIPEC 20 which is an arginine deaminator that will remove arginine from the cells, which is an essential amino acid that will, uh, no doubt, with its removal, cause cell death. But more importantly than the drug itself, the uh, HCC cells lack the enzyme arginosexinate synthase, which you can see to your right-hand side with the uh, Red arrow, uh, which uh, the lack of that enzyme will lead to the uh, lack of repletion of arginine from citrulline, and as such, the cells will die. We attempted in a randomized phase trial. ADI-PEC-20 as a single agent versus uh, placebo, and unfortunately this did not pan out. However, the combination of the FOFOX-ADI-PEC-20, which we attempted in a phase one trial still ongoing, has shown actually a clear benefit, and actually there is a clear biologic argument for the use of the ADI-PEC-20 in addition to fluoroprimidine and the platinum. And uh, that trial, which we already reported as a abstract, has shown that there's clear response rate, as you can see this in this waterfall plot, which actually tripled compared to what we know about FALFOX. FALFOX will cause a response rate of about 8%, while here we have 24%, which is nicely depicted here in the CT scan as comparing the baseline to the left and the response after four months to the right. An attempt for the combination of uh, local therapy plus uh, systemic uh, agents have been ongoing for a long while. We can, uh, of course, quote the space study that looked at the combination of tercene TACE, or um, the transarterial chemobilization plus sorafenib versus TACE alone. Unfortunately, they did not show any improvement in outcome, as you can see over here, looking at the overall survival. This was also reported the same way, not to be beneficial in regard to in a study reported from the UK called TACE2. Uh, and, however, uh, at this year ASCO, we heard about the TACTICS trial, which was a phase two a trial of TACE plus sorafenib, which, interestingly, showed a uh, evident improvement in regard to the uh, time to untreatable progression, a new definition that we are not necessarily have experience with that showed an improvement in favor of the TACE plus sorafenib the median TTP was also improvement, yet the overall survival was not reached. This definitely will at least bring a revisit to the uh, TACE plus sorafinib, even though for now I would not necessarily recommend it until we have a better understanding of the TACTIC study because of the uh, uh, trials that I showed, which is the SPACE, and the one I spoke about, which is the TACE-2. A similar attempt is being looked for the combination of the uh, serospheres, the uh, uh, atrium-90-based radiobolization plus uh, sorafenib, and uh, despite uh, the first attempts of comparing the uh, therospheres to uh, sorafenib that did not work, a combination of the two uh, will await for the results of that ceramic trial. Not only TKIs are being looked at in regard to combination with local therapies, but also the checkpoint inhibitors are. We can see here effort that was reported on tremilumumab with different forms of local therapy that showed rather suggestive of an improvement in regard to outcome. And if anything, a current ongoing trial of TACE plus nivolumab is underway. As we can see here, this is not really based on different dosing, but rather different timing, where the uh, nivolumab will be given after the TACE, before and after the TACE, or through and through. And we are waiting for the results of that trial. The approach to local therapy is not only dependent on TASE. Actually, an advent phase three trial is still ongoing for PEXVEC, which is a vaccinia virus with an altered TK, which has direct cell lysis, um, adaptive immune response through GCSF, and vascular shutdown, which will be combined with Surafnib, and of course, we're waiting for the results of that important trial as well. With this, I leave you with... Com- a summary stating that tersine kinase evolved up to uh, 5 now, yet all are limited by the safety profiles. Immuno-oncology agents have defined an evolving role in the management of advanced ACC, yet with the conditional approval of nivolumab, we're waiting for the phase 3 trial data. Chemotherapy role is yet to be further defined with that combination of the IPEC-20 that I mentioned. Systemic therapy in combination with local therapy is still underway. And the PEXAVEC study again is underway. Thank you very much for your attention. Please stay tuned for a question and answer session. Good afternoon and thank you for joining us uh, for today's webinar. Uh, My name is Ghassan Abu-Alfa from Memorial Sloan Catering Cancer Center, New York City, New York, and I'll be your moderator for today's question and answer sessions. And joining me today are my co-presenters and uh, colleagues, Dr. Lewis Roberts, uh, gastroenterology and hepatology from Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, Dr. Riyad Salem, professor of radiology, medicine and surgery, and chief of interventional radiology at Northwestern University, Chicago, Illinois and Dr. Myra Schwartz, Professor of Surgery at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount sinai Medical Center in New York. Welcome aboard, everybody. And as a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, please type a question into the question box. And, of course, we'll uh, make sure that we all will contribute here to help out the, the discussion to make it alive. Thank you. And uh, I, I'll start here with the uh, uh, first question uh, to uh, Dr. Schwartz. Myron, uh, so uh, t- tell us a little bit more about uh, HCC from your perspective. Uh, what would be in your mindset if you were to really define one thing as being the make it or break it for surgery versus no surgery?
1: Well, the considerations are both with regard to the underlying liver function and to the extent of tumor. As far as liver function is concerned, if we're talking about resection, we have to be quite strict if we want to achieve reasonable results, especially since what can be achieved with non-surgical approaches, uh, as Dr. Salam, I'm sure will contribute, uh, has improved to the point where there's really little room for uh, morbidity and mortality in, in liver surgery these days, so that we only operate on people with normal liver function. That doesn't mean that they don't have cirrhosis, the majority of our patients have cirrhosis, but it's with normal liver function, a child's class A, if we need to go into that, we can, what that means, without portal hypertension. Those are the people where we can consider surgery. Now, as far as the tumors are concerned, um, we have lots of technical capabilities. We can do a lot of uh, interesting things, but from a biological standpoint, the cases that are, are, are best are single tumors. Size doesn't matter in this situation, but um, tumors that are are single and that are in such a situation that we can remove them uh, without removing a large portion of the functioning liver.
0: Great. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, That's extremely helpful. And if anything, I would like to carry on that discussion uh, with the advent uh, of... uh, Uh, one specific uh, definition, which is the portal vein involvement or not. And uh, if uh, you don't mind, I would like in sequence to hear again uh, from Myron, uh, uh, what will this what will this mean in regard to surgical resection, the port of vein involvement, and at the same time the uh, port of vein involvement uh, from uh, your perspective, Dr. Salem Riyadh? Uh, what does that mean, and where does this fit in, especially in regard to radioembolization?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, there's no question, uh, even among surgeons who uh, are advocates of resection in pe- people with portal vein tumor involvement, that it's it's a, an extremely uh, powerful risk factor, a predictor of, of recurrence of cancer after surgery. Um, from a technical standpoint, if the tumor is confined to one lobe of the liver, uh, uh, the right or left portal vein uh, or the segmental branches more peripherally, resection can be carried out. But increasingly, we have taken a a position that um, while guidelines say systemic therapy, and there's no question some patients can be cured, we don't like having 80% early recurrence. And so that we now, I think this is a handoff to Riyadh, will treat the patients local regionally uh, with, in most cases, radioembolization and observe what the course of things is over time. If the tumor is excellently treated, we'll sit if the patient develops disease in the other side or in the lungs, then we know the resection would have been a bad idea. And if over time we see that the, there's still viable tumor in the treated area, but uh, there's nothing showing up anywhere else, then we will consider going ahead with resection. That, that's our current strategy. Of course, with the advent of this effect of systemic therapies, we commonly, outside of protocols, will combine systemic therapy with such an approach.
0: Oh, thank you, Myron. Riyadh, your thoughts?
2: Yeah. So, 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 there's no doubt that historically, the uh, patients with HCC with portal vein thrombosis and involvement have had sort of a relative contraindication for embolotherapy in general, like chemoembolization, because of the risk of ischemic hepatitis. But certainly, with the advent of radioembolization, which is sort of a minimally embolic. Uh, therapeutic load there has now been sort of resurgence of interest of local regional therapy in this specific patient population the the advanced patient population and so certainly uh, to sort of echo what Myron was saying what we're excited about over the last several years is the use of a local regional therapy particularly radioembolization, to sort of um, deal with the HCC in many cases cause shrinkage and retraction of the HCC uh median survivals range from from 12 to 14 months in sort of uh, patients with, with good uh, good liver uh, uh, liver function but very excitingly we've seen a lot of patients now with such significant response that, that they go on to get liver resection uh, you embed sort of a biologic test of time and i'm sure myron has seen those patients and in fact there are now uh, a series of patients and people are observing uh, uh, those that do well for two or three years now go on to liver transplantation even though it's a, it's a contraindication. And so there's a lot of interest uh, uh, in using this local regional therapy uh, radiombolization in, in portal vein thrombosis and in those patients that do really well, hyper-selecting them for for resection and transplantation, even though uh, they're not in the guidelines, because that's the, that's the, uh, that's the nature of sort of personalizing uh, care in this patient population. Yeah,
1: you, know, you know, when it right. comes to those patients, we... We used to treat them, and if they were good for th- uh, three or four months, go to surgery, but we started realizing that a good number of them on pathology had no viable tumor detected, and so that we've, we've changed our approach, and as long as the situation looks like there's a complete response uh, after radioembolization, we just sit tight until we see some evidence of viable tumor. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. Right. Well, thank you both. This is extremely helpful and very guiding. And uh, we'll switch subjects a little bit. And uh, we had a great question here that I would love to uh, hear the thoughts of uh, Dr. Roberts Lewis. Uh, what's the place of immunotherapy in the treatment uh, of patients who are waiting for a transplant? Uh, and, of course, uh, this is from the perspective of what, what the transplant pre-transplant situation might cause in regard to interaction with immunotherapy? Uh, that's interesting. We, we had the question before in regard to post-transplant, but let's start with this novel one, uh, pre-transplant. What do you think?
3: Yes, yeah, so that's a great question um, because of the evidence that we have so far that it looks as though with immunotherapy we're able to achieve some um, fairly durable um, responses in a proportion of HCC patients and, um, I think the question particularly is um what happens um if patients are, for example, immediately pre transplant are uh, going to go into the situation of having a transplant and need immunosuppression is you know what's the in a sense the duration of the effect of immunotherapy on their immune system, and then does that affect their Um, their ability or or their risk of rejection when they receive a transplant. And uh, and I think that's um, something that's um, still, um, I think, incompletely understood. Um, It's interesting to see a number of strategies that people are beginning to try to use in the post-transplant setting, but I think in the pre-transplant setting, that's not completely clear. Um, The question, of course, that sometimes arises is if you do have someone who um, goes on immunotherapy and then has a durable response, that person at the very least could potentially have their transplant delayed and may potentially even never need transplant. So that becomes another factor as well.
1: I think something I that Gasan, I think that you should address. You know, the transplant patients commonly have altered liver function. They're they're not necessarily Child's A, and we've always avoided using the TKIs in such patients. But it's my impression that the the immunotherapy agents are maybe easier to tolerate in people with worse liver function. Uh, it, what do you? In that sense, would they have a better role in patients with Child's B waiting for liver transplant?
0: absolutely and actually along that line i would like to ask you myron another question uh, so so the aim of course of the question that was brought up and of course uh, um, we had great answer from both of you from the perspective of the safety of uh, an intervention of that nature. Uh, but the question is, uh, of course, uh, the checkpoint inhibitors uh, are kind of like mainly uh, perceived as uh, having great responses, even though it is, it is there. But I uh, understand it's limited to about 16 to 20% based on the NIVO uh, reported data. Um, but with this said, uh, if I were to have, and I'm putting here a theoretical question, but uh, to illustrate the point, if I have a patient with a lesion which is let's say, 9 centimeter, and uh, I use checkpoint inhibitor, and now it shrinks all the way to 4 centimeter, and now technically by definition it's still a transplantable lesion based on that size uh, as per the Milan criteria. And, of course, we can use any criteria per se, but let's assume within that context I move the lesion from being not resectable, not transplantable, to become eligible for it a, a liver-eligible liver, liver tra, for transplant. Uh, how do you perceive that? Is this like for you a 4-centimeter to begin with similar to like a 9 that became 4, or how, how do you read this?
1: Well, you know, the, the concept of downstaging is big in, in liver transplantation, and it never made much sense to me because if a big tumor has risk of having begun to to spread, then what you do to the tumor in the liver is just cosmetic. It doesn't take back the, the cells that may have begun to, to to leave, you know. But nivolumab actually is a very different uh, thing. The, the way we've always done downstaging is with chemoembolization, with ablation of the tumors, local regional treatments to the liver that have no potential to impact on the likelihood of spread. So it's actually much more appealing to me to think that we could downstage a tumor with nivolumab uh, than with local regional treatments, because if you see the tumor in the liver shrink like that, then there's some reason to hope that maybe there's been an effect on the extra hepatic spread that's undetectable. So I, I think that, I mean, unfortunately, it's, like you said, only 20% of cases, but I think that would be a much better way to do it than, than the traditional way.
0: Absolutely, that's very important. So to uh, uh, to, to kind of like uh, translate what you said is like we're treating ourselves rather than treating the tumor over here. And I, I hear your point very loud and clear there. So so what on the subject of uh, uh, checkpoint inhibitors? Uh, so uh, Dr. Salem, Riyadh. Uh, so uh, there has been quite a bit of uh, interest in regard to combination of local therapy uh, being either chemobilization or radioembolization with TKIs, specifically Surafneb And uh, let's start there, maybe. You can tell us a little bit about the current experience, the most recent reported data in that regard that uh, teach us there.
2: So, so so obviously with the with the advent of, uh, of the sharp data in two thousand and eight, there was sort of this initial interest that uh, by default, anything you would do from a combinatorial uh, fashion would sort of improve either pro- time to progression, PFS overall survival. And certainly, there have been some studies and some combinatorial studies, and there's been sort of an, an initial dis- disappointment, obviously, uh, with the data from, from space and others uh, in terms of whether the addition of a TKI to, say, key mobilization or drug eluding bees is able to prolong a PFS or TTP, et cetera. And so there's been sort of an overall disappointment of that. There certainly is uh, some some interest, and in, in, uh, one of the criticisms has been, is the endpoint correct, et cetera. And now certainly with the findings of the of the TACTICS clinical trial, which, which we're anxiously awaiting sort of some more of the detail, is uh, if we sort of refine the endpoint to be a bit more relevant to include sort of local regional therapies, the number of treatments, when to treat, Is that something that is uh, that is to be considered and things like time to treatment failure or uh, time to sort of conversion uh, to a a different treatment? Is that something of interest? And that's something that I think we're starting to look at. But I think you're also alluding to uh, checkpoint inhibitors. I think certainly. Uh, now, with the advent of, of uh, those findings, there's sort of a renewed uh, interest in, uh, in combinatorial treatments, and we're all anxious to combine that with the immunotherapies, and we're doing that here, certainly, and I know many other places are doing it, because, again, there's excellent... Um, uh, excellent partial response rates, our patients that respond for a very long time, and of course the uh, the abs- uh, abscopal effect that everybody uh, continues to look for is really something that is a combinatorial concept. And so there's a lot of I think renewed excitement uh, in these types of concepts.
3: I think uh, perhaps also another question that comes up is the potential for um, combination of the checkpoint inhibitors with the receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors, also where i think that there's also you uh, I, I i think anticipation um there seems to be some early staged uh, early phase data that suggests that um we see perhaps substantial benefits with com- combining those two classes as well so i think that's also um quite interesting and um it'll be interesting to see how um these play out as we get into the phase 2 and and phase 3 studies
1: for sure, Absolutely.
0: I, I totally agree. If anything, uh, I wanted to go back over to Dr. Salem. And uh, you mentioned already tactics. And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about like that uh, novel endpoint that was used there? And do you think it's really just uh, a kind of different way of reading uh, a positive outcome? Or is it really have value down the road for like something that you can learn from?
2: Well, I think, time is, I think time is going to tell on, on, on that endpoint, which is, uh, I think if I remember correctly, sort of a combination of, of uh, you know, how long it takes to, to change treatment and, uh, and uh, how long it takes to fail the, the particular therapy, the embolotherapy that you're uh, applying. And I think there's relevance to that. I think the idea that you can treat uh, with a certain type of therapy and, and prolong that amount of time, I think certainly uh, makes some sense. Is there a component of that that is sort of morphed and modified uh, to fit sort of the therapy? Probably, but but that's no different than using, say, MRESIST criteria for HCC or PERSIS criteria for uh, for for PET scanning uh, findings. So I think there's a combination uh, here. Uh, and I think, again, time will tell. I think we need to get that data uh, from Japan uh, validated uh, by another center. Uh, but uh, the, the, the philosophy or the need to think about looking for novel endpoints I think is clearly there because we've seen some failures of using TTP and the initial enthusiasm about it translating to a survival benefit hasn't really panned out. And of course, local regional therapies and immunotherapies cause unique things like pseudo-progression uh, and uh, and um, the need to wait even though the lesions are getting larger and changes in vascularity so I think the spirit is there I think there needs to be some more refining of that but I think the spirit of of trying to develop novel endpoints that are relevant and relevant for patients and move the field forward certainly are probably there
0: I hear you. So let's go back to uh, the current uh, uh, novel therapies uh, that uh, the whole presentation was about. And uh, remember, we moved from surafinib as uh, uh, many of us already have reported uh, or, or spoke about. And now we have regorafenib in second line. We have levatinib potentially in first line. We have cabozantinib potentially in second line. We have remissimab potentially in second line with AFP more than 400. And we have, of course, already the uh, conditional approval for nifulimab in second line. That's really, an incredible change from one drug to six drugs, literally in barely a year. And the question is that I have for uh, Dr. Schwartz. So Myron, uh, uh, I could be wrong, but nonetheless I'm trying to represent our colleagues as well here. the perception was uh, that uh, systemic therapy uh, for HCC is kind of like uh, the end of the road kind of message, like you know this is the best we can do. Uh, stability of disease is okay, but out of nothing we hear, for example, a drug like lenvatinib with a forty point seven percent modified resist response rate. Uh, how do you read this? What, what does that mean to you?
1: Well, I think uh, I can speak. Safely for the community of uh, surgeons and 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 people, uh, local treaters, including interventional radiologists, and say that the, the 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 whole view of this field is is different. We we now incorporate these trial uh, these uh, drugs early into our treatment algorithms. We make every effort to get patients into trials uh, because uh, the the. Uh, lenvatinib may be 40, lenvatinib plus uh, uh, immunotherapy, who knows, in renal it's 60. Uh, It's a tremendously exciting time that's uh, led us to move away from the uh, traditional uh, pushing local regional treatments until uh, the patient can no longer tolerate them to getting patients onto uh, systemic therapy early Um, in cases outside of trials, not uncommonly in combination with local regional therapies, although that's an area that really needs to be studied carefully. But it, it's a whole new world. We're, we, we couldn't be happier.
0: That's great to hear. And uh, I go back to uh, Dr. Salem-Riyad. Uh, teach us a little bit more. Uh, we, we'll make you now put your radiology hat, uh, of the many hats that you have, and uh, tell us a little bit about Modified Resist uh, versus Resist 1.1. Uh, tell us a little bit more.
2: Yeah. So, so we know that uh, when it comes to local regional therapies, there has been uh, traditionally uh, several challenges, or there have been several challenges, in assessing response and the importance of response because of the often inability of lesions to actually shrink in in size, which is the premise of uh, of the original WHO and the RESIST and the RESIST 1.1, and so the modified RESIST were developed to incorporate the concept of vascularity or avascularity. Following treatment. And so, what we wanted to capture is to make sure that just because a lesion did not decrease in size doesn't mean you haven't killed it and haven't caused necrosis. And so, measuring vascularity has become very important. Uh, We eliminate and kill the vascularity when we ablate lesions, we uh, obstruct the vascularity when we embolize uh, lesions. And of course, with uh, some of the uh, systemic therapies, they can alter the vascularity as well. And we've seen that with some of the data from France. Uh, and from the UK as well. And so the principle here is to capture the response, again, tailoring it to the mechanism of action. And so it's a little bit like I was saying about untreatable progression uh, when it came to the tactics clinical trial. This is a way to try to improve and better capture the reality uh, as opposed to to uh, waiting for lesion uh, shrinkage. Now, there still is uh, some uh, decrease in size that happens with with uh, Resist. Local regional therapy still cause uh, 30-40% uh, reduction in size, but when it comes to uh, modified resist—it's uh, about 50, 60, 70 percent, depending on the on the studies that you're looking at. So again, it's just a way to try to tailor and to make sure that you're capturing the true effect, rather than be hampered by a tool that may have certain limitations, particularly size. Mm-hmm.
1: Great, that's found... extremely
2: helpful. Oh. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I've always found modified resist to be very useful in embolization, ablation, where it's literally black and white. Uh, whereas the changes that occur with the systemic therapies often can result in, uh, you know, a spectrum of shades of gray. And I, I, I don't know, Ria yeah, do you think that, those, that it's as useful in systemic therapies uh, as it is in uh, local regional therapies?
2: You mean modified resist? Yeah. Well, it's certainly used, and it's certainly used to, uh, to, to, to report sort of augmented rates of uh, response. My only concern with systemic therapies, and I've observed this here, uh, is that it can often be artifactual, uh, and the vascularity can return quickly after the agent is discontinued. I'm sure Ghassan right. and Lewis have seen that. And so, and so if, if something is avascular on an agent, and then four weeks later, all the vascularity returns because you're discontinuing agent that you can't really call it necrosis because it really wasn't necrotic. It was just flow artifact. But I I, 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 uh, I hear, uh, I agree with you. I hear sort of a little bit of the skepticism. It's being studied, but but I think it's something that we have to watch out for.
0: I, I hear you both loud and clear in that regard. Even though, interestingly, for example, in the Levatinib data, it's not like the Resist 1.1 was any worse. It was like a close to about 25%. But with this said, I go back to uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Roberts. Uh, so, Lewis... Uh, Uh, One of the probably most commonly asked questions at the moment, and already we were asked that, uh, and I'm sure we're all approached with the same question is how to pick and choose between the different. TKIs. And let's start at least from one perspective and we might tackle others based on what questions we get. But let's start from the perspective, hepatitis B versus hepatitis C. What does that mean? Are they really just a different flavor of the same disease? Are they different disease to begin with? And, uh, what does really the outcome will depend on, uh, for those two, uh, based on a specific TKI?
3: so that's a, that's an excellent question I think the uh, the data is still in, in 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 flux or in development, but for example you know some of the early data that we had with serafinib, you know we had got a fairly strong suggestion that um indiv- individuals who um, had hepatitis C appear to be more likely to have responses than individuals who had hepatitis b even though If we look at the trials that were done in um, in, um, that had the Worldwide trial versus the ASIA um, trial, the ASIA trial had a preponderance of patients with hepatitis B-induced cancer and still showed a significant benefit. So clearly, all patients show a benefit, but it seemed as though those with hepatitis C in some ways had um, got a preferential benefit. Uh, why is that? Well, you know, there's data that suggests, and, 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 and this is where the the region where the cancer is occurring also seems to be important. We know that, for example, that individuals in Asia are more likely to be exposed to aflatoxin, more likely to have P53 mutations, and um, and so that they are likely... To be differences in the profile of mutations that their tumors have and other aberrations compared to um, individuals in other countries. And maybe that's part of the underlying um, difference in pathogenesis that's been reflected by differences in response. I
0: hear you, I hear you. And along that same line, uh, while we're on the same subject, I'll ask uh, Dr. Horst. so Myron, tell us from your perspective, what does an AFP mean to you? Is it a diagnostic, prognostic or nothing marker? Your thoughts.
1: The the main value of alpha-fetoprotein at this point, I think, is being increasingly recognized as a prognostic marker as opposed to diagnostic, although uh, it, it, uh, I think now that hepatitis C is, is being cured and we have such a reduction in the uh, number of patients with falsely elevated AFPs due to uh, active hepatitis C, um, it, it's more useful in the screening and surveillance role uh, as well. Maybe Lewis can comment on that. It's his expert, expertise, but uh, in the transplant world, for example, the criteria for eligibility have been altered this year to incorporate uh, alpha fetoprotein protein patients with alpha fetoprotein protein levels over a thousand are not eligible for priority on the transplantation uh, waiting list even if they have tumors within the size and number criteria that would enable them to uh, have priority if the tumor is treated the afp has to be brought below 500 uh and if it is then the patient can can get priority but uh it's always in every study of resection uh, it always comes out as an independent predictor size for size number for number of tumors if the afp is high it's a, a predictor of, of recurrence and mortality
0: Thank you so much, Myron. And go back to Lewis on the same question. Uh, so I think, uh, understandably, the question is probably was brought up uh, uh, in view of the uh, advent of the remissure map data that was reported at ASCO. Uh, and, uh, of course, with the indication that the AFP might be representing uh, a prognostic uh, component here. Uh, tell us a little bit. How do you read that data?
3: Yeah, so I think, you know, what the data suggests is that individuals, and I think so thinking back to the, bi- the biology question that we were discussing, I think what we're seeing is that AFP is a marker for a certain subset or, or, or subgroup of, of HCCs that seem to be more likely to, to respond to a particular subset of agents, in this case ramucirumab. And interestingly, even though overall these tumors have um, a worse prognosis of, 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 of the range of HCCs, they are, they're most likely to respond to, um, to this particular drug. So in a sense, it's leading us closer to the idea of being able to personalize therapy for patients where ideally we get to the point where we understand well enough the different subclasses of HCC that we can peel, we can select the ideal therapy for individual patients.
0: I hear you, but but don't uh, teach me this. Uh, Like, uh, don't we, for example, understand and expect that a patient with even local disease with the AFP in the millions with hepatitis B is a relatively uh, have been seen, while a patient with metastatic disease with hepatitis C might have even AFP, which is like only forty. Where does the uh, risk factor uh, play a role in regard to the AFP?
3: Yeah, so I think it's, 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 in, it's in a sense, a, a function of two different things. So within each, um, within each group of HCCs, or within a group of HCCs, the likelihood of having a high AFP increases with the size of the lesion. So as, as tumors increase in size, they become more and more likely that there's a subclone in the tumor that makes, uh, that makes AFP. On the other hand, um, we know that if you have tumors that are small, only a smaller fraction of them, maybe perhaps 20% of early-stage HTCs, will have high AFP. And within the group of small or earlier-stage tumors, the ones that have high AFP appear to have a different type of biology. Um, and so, for example, if you have hepatitis B-induced cancers, Um, you will have within the group that have high AFP a different kind of biology from the ones that don't, and and, and similarly, for hepatitis C-induced cancers. The thing that becomes uh, 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 an additional consideration in the case of hepatitis C is the fact that when you have these cycles of significant injury and regeneration and repair that okay in the context of hepatitis C, the regeneration is often associated with release and production of alpha-fetoprotein, but that's not necessarily so much from the tumor as it's from the regenerative um, capacity that's occurring in the liver, but that can be confusing because you may then have patients who have HCC that necessarily, the HCC itself may not necessarily be producing the AFP, but in the context of a regeneration, they may have elevated AFPs.
0: Great, thank you so much. And uh, one question we just got. Uh, so, Dr. Salim, Riyadh, uh, tell us a little bit about what, what's the ceramic study?
2: The ceramic study. Oh, yes. Okay, yes. So, the ceramic study, as I understand it, is a, uh, a European-based study that uh, was looking at um, uh, HCC and um, imaging and uh, uh, stratifying patients into uh, curative and palliative arms. And the addition of um, serafinib uh, in those, uh, in, those uh, uh, in I think one of those arms, maybe even the second one, but in one of those arms. I know that the data uh, has not been published, but it was just recently reported, I believe, at EASL uh, by Dr. Ricke, who I think is the PI. And uh, I believe, and, and uh, hopefully I'm not incorrect here, that, that the data was not positive in the sense of inability to demonstrate the benefit of serafinib in the local regional therapy arm but I believe that was the, the spirit of the study, and we're obviously waiting for the publication. But I think there was a, both a curative and a palliative uh, component with imaging and the addition of a TKI.
0: You're absolutely uh, right. Uh, I, I Definitely, I, I read it as negative as well, uh, but uh, definitely it was a genuine effort as well. But uh, with this, uh, I would like to... Uh, uh, thank you, uh, especially thank you all our listeners uh, and uh, colleagues uh, for attending today's webinar. And uh, of course, I would like to thank uh, all three faculty members who joined me today, uh, Dr. Roberts, uh, Dr. Salem, and Dr. Schwartz. Uh, this was an incredible and amazing uh, discussion, and uh, please remember to be eligible for continuing medical education credit for today's activity. Log on to www.naccme.com, and uh, you have to successfully complete 10 questions that are post-test and evaluation form, and you can immediately print your document of credit. Uh, if anything, it really uh, remains a great honor uh, to continue to work with the North American uh, Center for Continuing medical education, who really did an incredible job and would like to thank them and uh, congratulate them on this effort. And with this, uh, this concludes today's session. Thank you again for joining us.
3: Thank you.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you.